Well, good morning and happy Independence Day. Day. I was going to say weekend, but it is an actual day or uh, National Rebellion Day or however you want to look at that. <laughs> uh, we do thank God for the freedom uh, that we have here to enjoy. Uh, and uh, so I am thankful for that. Most importantly, I love what we just read. Uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And there's a greater freedom to be experienced uh, than the freedom of government and, and oppression. There's a freedom from sin and a freedom from death, which the gospel gives to us in Christ Jesus. And uh, so we praise God for that. Love that passage in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, it's good to have Steve and Janie uh, King with us and uh, our missionaries, and what a joy it is to, to have them up this weekend. So maybe you want to say uh, hi to them uh, after the service. After the service, you can uh, just remind them you're praying for them. And seeing them is a good encouragement, not just to pray for them, them, but for all of our missionaries. And uh, Marcy will be here with us, our missionary in Hungary, uh, doing a church plant there. He'll be with us next Sunday night, uh, sharing in our communion service uh, of what's going on there in Hungary. And then he'll be uh, giving us an exhortation from God's Word. So we just encourage you to make a point to be here for that. Uh, and we are celebrating 30 years of God's faithfulness here as a church uh, this coming September 5th. So keep that in your minds as you, as you think about the days ahead. Well, we've been going through a study here uh, on Sunday mornings through the book of Hebrews. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 8. If you're using a pew Bible, I don't know what page that's on. So, um, <laughs> so thankful for the guys. They're very helpful with that. Maybe I should um, uh, work on that. Note to self, Hebrews chapter number 8. What I'd like to do is just read this chapter, uh, these few verses here, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and look at this together this morning. Um, the Bible says, verse number 1, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy the shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And one of the most joyful thoughts that you can think of throughout this week, sorry for the break in the reading, is that statement. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, he goes on and says, verse number 11, And they shall not teach each other his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you for this morning and all that we have seen of Christ in our songs and our rejoicing and and our prayers. And we just pray, God, that you would uh, just again show us who this wonderful Savior is to us, your people, and to each one that's gathered here this morning. I pray that your spirit would work among us. There would be liberty for him to move uh, in our hearts and in our lives. And we commit all this to you in his name. Amen and amen. I suppose you notice that the uh, technology is advancing at an alarming rate. Unbelievable. Everything is faster. Everything is smaller or sleeker or more personalized to the individual touch and, and all that stuff. Uh, that they advertise. It is no surprise when you buy your latest phone or laptop or whatever it may be, it's already in need of improvement. So you turn it on and it's already outdated. It's uh, fascinating how the world works. And I can recall turning on a cell phone and, and it was a new one. It was the latest version or model or whatever it was. And as soon as you turn it on, you get one of those notifications, you know, a little circle with a number in it. Those things drive me crazy, and I don't know how some of you live this life uh, with all of those on your phone, you know, 2,500 emails or whatever. Clear them off. It would make my life easier, but anyway, maybe something's wrong with me. But that little notification brings you to your settings and says the latest version is available, the latest update and as you read the fine print, why well, you need that update, because it fixes bugs and, and problems that was with the last latest update. Now, I don't want to stretch that illustration farther than I, I should stretch it, but what you see here is the, the latest update, if you will, or the, the new version in one way as you come to this passage here, as you speak about the old covenant and the new covenant. Here God brings to us through the gospel and and this language in chapter number 8 what God has done to fix the problems with the first covenant. And you see that emphasis on better or best in verse number 6 if you look back with me where he says it is uh, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than that of the old covenant. He mediates or what he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. He's, he's bringing us to this realization that what God has done for us in this person of Jesus and in the, in, in the offer of the gospel is much better than what, what we see in the Old Testament or, or the work in the Old Testament. Now that's not saying that the Mosaic Covenant or the law in the Old Testament is bad as some people might suggest. 
It is, as you look at your Bible, an expression of the holiness of God. As he meets with his people in the book of Exodus and and declares his law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all of that is a a declaration that God is holy and about his holiness. And, And we marvel and we love it because it tells us who God is, at least for that very reason. And so we're not saying when we speak about Old Covenant and New Covenant that the Old Covenant was bad. In fact, what we see later on, Paul speaking in the book of Galatians, is that that Old Covenant served as a purpose of grace. Grace in kind of a different way than we might see in the New Testament. Nevertheless, it was a work of God's grace towards the children of Israel. Not only did it convey for us the holiness of God, but it also showed us the unholiness of man. Or I could say it another way, it was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, is what he says to them in the book of Galatians. It exposes our sin. And you know that we could go through a list of the Ten Commandments and we say they shall have no other God in all of the things that he says just in Ten Commandments. And, and how often does it come face to face with who we are and that we violated all of what he just said. And so you see that God has given in the Old Testament this expression of his own holiness, but this rule, this this understanding of our lack of holiness that is found in the law. It is why Paul, when he speaks about the Old Covenant, he speaks about the ministry of death, as was read in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, because it convicts us and it condemns us. It stands against us. And here we see contrasted with that is this this covenant that he refers to here as the new covenant in verse number 6 and 7. And and really the theme of this chapter, this new covenant given to us and how it excels in power and fullness in Jesus Christ. This new promise, this new grace or gift to us in Jesus Christ. Not only do you see this offer that is much better, it shows that as it as Paul refers to it in the Corinthians, that that it is much more glorious in so much that it consumes or the glory of it, it, it really takes away or diminishes the glory of the first covenant. And so what you see in your Bible is the, the revelation of God doesn't get worse, it gets better as God begins to reveal himself and his work of redemption. And humankind in so much where Paul says as we look at Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, it is uncomparable when we look at the Old Testament in Mount Sinai because it is so magnificent. So magnificent. And here you see the same language of this passing away and this, uh, this being replaced. In verse number 7 he says in the first covenant, if it had been faultless, there's speaking of the fault with it, and we'll look at that, Lord willing, in just a minute there would have been no occasion to look for a second or something more. And he reminds us in verse number 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. And so what he's showing us is God's redemptive work at its pinnacle. The highlight of what God has done to deliver mankind is found in Jesus Christ. And so he points us to what he refers to here as this new covenant. 
Now, verses 1 through 7 is really fleshed out in chapter 9 and chapter 10, and we will revisit these themes as we already have seen a little bit of these themes over and over again. But it is worth noting this is the very point of him writing about Jesus being our high priest. And so it benefits us this morning to consider the point in which he's making in verse number 1. Notice he says, now this is the point, this is the summary, this is what I want you to know. And so we should, when we read that, we should stand up or, or sit up. I'm not asking you to stand up this morning, but, but sit up and be like, you, you've been talking about Melchizedek and you've been talking about rest and all this other stuff. What is it that you're getting to? And he says, well, here it is. And that is we have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He goes on, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord is set up. He points us back to this great high priest. We have a better minister than they of the old covenant. And that is found in Jesus Christ. And let me just hopefully two words may help us guide through these two verses. The first is we have a better minister. And he, and he refers to that in throne room setting or in the throne. You find that in verse number one. And secondly, he speaks about the true tent. But notice first, he says in verse number eight, or verse number one of chapter number eight, he says, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's a very odd thing for him to say. Odd because as you look in chapter number nine, and he speaks about all the furniture of the, the tent or the tent of meetings or the tabernacle, he doesn't speak about a seat at all. There's a reference in the Old Testament to the mercy seat, but that's referred to or symbolizing the throne of God himself, but not a seat for the priest. It is a constant busyness, a constant work or activity that you find in the Old Testament. There's not a place to sit down and rest. There's no rest for the weary or the wicked, as one mother told her children um, as they were complaining about being tired. That is what we see in the temple, in the tabernacle. There was no place for the high priest to rest. And yet here there's an emphasis in the fact that as Jesus who has, has come to become our high priest has taken his seat declaring that he has rested from his labors. He has rested from his suffering. I, that is a word of encouragement for us this morning that there is an end to suffering. There's a rest promised to the people of God. Amen. There's a moment where while we are promised in this life suffering and trouble and heartache and and all of that is promised to us in God's word. It is just but for a moment. There is a moment where we will sit with him in glory. But it speaks more than just to resting from his suffering as if one of the saints who gone on into heaven. It speaks of a completed work. He has done everything that is needed to be done to secure salvation for those who come to him by faith. You see later on in chapter number 9 as he speaks about the sacrifice of Christ that he has once and for all offered up a sacrifice for us in verse number 26. He has seated down, completed what was needed for our redemption. He has rested from his suffering. But not only does being seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty speak of that finished work of Christ, it, it also speaks of the of the privilege of Christ. 
Now, if you read your Bible and, and you've read through the first part of your Bible or at least heard some familiarity with the Bible, you find some interesting uh, figures as it comes to the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and those characters in there. And, and as you notice that, and even the book of Hebrews highlights that in the first few chapters, that, that it is remarkable to see God's creation and creatures being given or, or having been shown such favor from God. Uh, one, I think, even as we've been going through this study in the book of Hebrews, is, is how the, the view of angels and their work in mediating this old covenant uh, came about. I don't know as if I thought about that very much until we read that in chapter 1 and chapter number 2. Speaking about the involvement of angels as the covenant or, or the law was given to Moses. And yet we see Moses himself, and no one was given such honor as him. Standing there being shown uh, uh, the aftermath of God's glory in Exodus chapter number 34. Being uh, given a sermon by God himself as he preaches his name. I've heard a lot of good sermons in my life. I'm sure you have too. And, and, and what would it be like for God himself to preach his name to you? Declare his name. It must have been an amazing encounter with God. As he covered him in the cleft of the rock and he would see the aftermath or the aftershock of the glory of God. Uh, so favored by God he was that he, he speaks to Moses' siblings and he says, I speak to him face to face. He, he, he's taken up on the mountain and, and shown the tent of meetings and, and he was to give the law. And all of this given by the grace of God to this man, Moses. So favored was he by God that his face glowed as he come off of the mountain, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. And upon his death, the Bible says God hid his body so they wouldn't worship him. Favored by God. Or that of Aaron, as we see, and in, in, as he's contrasting in chapter number 7 and chapter number 6 about the high priest who's allowed to go in the holies of holies every year. One man. Aaron chose for that privilege and that right. That place which was symbolized as the central location of the presence of God in the midst of his people. And yet what we find, he would not go in without bells on his garments and a rope attached to his leg in case the bells stopped moving, they could pull him out in case he died in the midst of service. It's a sober privilege, and yet none of these been given the honor as this man Jesus have you considered that? I don't know what your view about Jesus is or your thought. Maybe he's a good prophet. Maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe a lot of people like him. They sing songs about him or whatever it may be. But notice what the Bible says of him at this particular point. No other person in all of Scripture has been given such honor. Nothing has been said of him save that of God himself. And for rightful reasons. Because he is God himself. Is what the Bible tells us. And actually in Colossians uh, consider what it says that all things were made by him speaking of Jesus and, and all things made for him and here we see such honor given to this mediator of the new covenant or we might say to the, to the gospel as what we find in verse number one he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven 
uh, Aaron able to go in the holies of holies once a year, not without blood, not without all of the ritual rites, and not with all the precautions that he would have to take and his children, which would follow after him. But here, this one minister of the gospel is living ever in the presence of God. Not to see a glimpse of him hidden by the hand of God on the mount as as God would pass by because no one can look upon him and live. No, here is one who has has come and, and has paid price for our sin, who is living in the presence of God himself, seated at his right hand, speaking of all privileges and honor and power that is given to him, and rightfully so because no one else bears the title Son of God but him. There's no one like him. No one like him. Is he competent to save? Is he sufficient to save? Is he able? There's no one like him. He sits in the presence of God at this right hand of the throne of God, at the throne of majesty in heaven. You see, he reminds us not only his seated, seated position is that of a better minister in the fact that he has finished his ministry of suffering and death, but a better minister in the fact that he is in the presence of God. He has been given such privilege that no other man has received because he is unlike any other man. He is the Son of God in the presence of God. He is, he is as we find in the Old Testament, referred to, and we see over and over, and even as his name Jesus reminds us, he is is a testimony that God is our Savior. God is our Savior, our Deliverer. He goes on, not only as we see this, we, uh, in, the, in the realm of the throne mentioned here, we see it also in verse number 2, shown in the place of his ministry, that is the ministry of the true tent. Notice again, a minister speaking of Jesus in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Isn't that an odd statement? How do you take that when you read that? Maybe you can just think about that a moment. The true tent. No, we, we know as we read in, in Exodus, as Moses has been given a pattern, he goes on and speaks about that in verse number Five, doesn't he? He says they serve as a copy and a shadow and a heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make it everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And yet here the writer is bringing our thoughts to consider that Jesus' ministry is not in a temporary place of worship. It would have been a thousand years or better since they had the tabernacle erected and they used that in the worship of God. And then they had a temple, which is a more permanent structure, and it fell. And then you got another temple and all that, that stuff that carried on. And, and yet what he's saying here is beyond all of these earthly realms, beyond all of these, these temporary things of wood and stone and, and, and rubble, which we find is the true tent, is the true dwelling place of God. He's not arguing that God is not everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's not arguing against that. He's saying there's one central location considered to be the throne of God, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And, and he says that is the ministry of this Savior, the true tent, the true tent. Now, not true as opposed to false, as if the tabernacle was a false tent and 
and therefore uh, uh, something that shouldn't have been. In fact, it was God who gave them the pattern to build it after, but true as opposed to the shadow, as opposed to the real thing. You see, some of you have pictures of children in your home and you go by and you see them and you think that's very nice. I remember when they were that age and, and all that. I have a picture of my wife on my desk, but you know, there's a few times I've ate lunch here. I've got it to go down the road. And I don't offer that picture anything to eat because it is just an image of the person, right? And, and that's what he's saying. There is an image, there is a, a reflection, a shadow of the real thing. The real thing was is in the presence of God in heaven, in in eternity, that which will not pass away. Reminding us that the ministry and that which he has come to do is is eternal, not temporary. You see the problem of him just ministering here on earth. And as he goes on and says in verse number 4, Now if he were here on earth, he would... Not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. But he says he's not here. You won't go to the temple of Jerusalem before AD 70 and go find Jesus ministering in that temple. That is not where he has come to minister. But he's come to minister in the very presence of God. In the very presence, in the very throne of God himself is the place of his ministry. That which is better, that which is lasting. He's speaking about heaven. And what an encouragement that is to these people who fix their hope in a location. We do that, don't we? We, we, we like that. We like to attach ourselves to that, that, that physical thing that we see. And no doubt a, a, an early Jewish believer would have fixed his attention and his thought on the tabernacle or the temple of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, many of them thought God would never judge Israel because after all, they had the temple of God. So they would boast. God would never lead us off into captivity because we have the temple. And yet, and, and yet what we would see in just a couple of years at the writing of this letter, the temple would be destroyed and, and, and done away with. And he's saying, don't you see your hope is not set on, on the temple mount? And can I say that for us as Christians today? Sometimes we think the Temple Mount is where our hope is set, right? There's a lot of people that go out and, and put a lot of emphasis on that. That's not where it's set. Our hope is set in heaven, where Christ is and ministering on our behalf. He, he points us to something that is lasting, and, and especially in a world which everything feels like sand. It's Independence Day. Some of us feel our country feels a lot like sand anymore, doesn't it? But he doesn't say this is your home. He doesn't say this is your hope, your lasting sojourner. No, he says this is just temporary. Our mind, our heart, our affection is set on that which is eternal. That's what he says in Colossians, does he? Set your mind on those things where Christ is seated. Set your affection on those things because that's where your hope is. That's where your life is. When he comes, your life will be, your life will be revealed. Because you will be with him. And so he reminds us even this morning as we see the place of his ministry, the tent, that eternal place is, is he's bringing our attention, our focus on that which is lasting because the world is like our lives. It may be a little bit longer vapor. 
Like this morning, the, the fog didn't lift very quickly as it does other mornings. But nevertheless, it is but a vapor. Our life is like that as well, isn't it? Sometimes our hope is not fixed in, in, in physical things like that. It's fixed in our own life and the anticipation of tomorrow and good health and age and all those things that we can anticipate. And you see, no, all those are temporary. All of those are, are not lasting. Our hope is meant to be fixed on that which is eternal, that promise which he gives to us that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go do that, I will surely come again and bring you unto myself. I like that promise. Reminds me that he doesn't forget me. He will not forget me. They didn't just go off because it's a lot better there than it is here. Because let's be honest, it is, right? It's what Paul says. No, but he's going off with purpose and determination to prepare a place for me and all those who by faith come to him. That is the hope and promise that we have in this new mediator in the place of his ministry. What a wonderful reminder of the reason of his ascension. Why was it needful for the Son to ascend to heaven? Well, for one, to, to send to us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, to fulfill what he says later on in this chapter, but also to make preparations and security for your salvation and mine. He is ministering in a much, much better place. But notice also this morning... Verses 6 and 7, that not only is it a better minister in the new covenant, speaking that of Jesus, but it is a better ministry. And that's what he says here, but Christ, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. And notice how he describes it. That is much more excellent than the old. Now, you remember what? We read this morning in the opening scripture reading, not the opening, but the scripture reading. He says that that glory of the old covenant, which is passing away, if in it, it, if it had that much glory, how much more glory does the new covenant have? That's the language that he's speaking of here. He's saying how much more excellent. Again, he's not saying that what God did in the Old Testament wasn't an expression of his grace to those people. But nowhere near in comparison the expression of grace extended to us through Jesus Christ this morning. He's saying how much more excellent is this ministry than that of the old covenant. He mediates, or the old covenant he mediates is better. Just simply plain out and out better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Now you see a lot of continuity between verses 9 and 12, a continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament promises here. Even Peter using some of the same languages as he refers to the New Testament saints as being priests of God and a holy nation, those things like that. But here, you know, I, I was just meditating on that word, better promises. And so I, I looked at all of my commentators or all the commentaries that I have, and, and they, I was just reading, what is that one word? What are they saying here? And, and all of them said the new covenant has better promises, and, and they had like two sentences after it, and then it went on to the next verse. You know how frustrating that is? It's like going to an auto mechanic and asking him, uh, do you change oil? No, I, I can overhaul an engine and do everything else, but I just can't change your oil. You know, it's, it's kind of frustrating. So what does he mean? 
Well, he speaks earlier in chapter number 4 of a rest for the people of God. And we know in the Old Testament he makes much to do about the land where the nation of Israel is in Palestine, doesn't he? And he says, if you walk in my words, you'll live in this land and you'll prosper and and it will go well with you and and I will bless you and and all of the the promises he's made. But, But to us we see this great promise extending beyond dirt and and things that we see in this life extending beyond and Peter says we have an inheritance imperishable that fadeth not away reserved for us in heaven and saying that that rest which we see in the Old Testament was just an image just just an idea of what awaits the people of God in the rest that's found in Jesus Christ there's a rest Maybe that's what he means. Maybe that's what he's speaking to us about as he, as he talks about the rest. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, because you hate misquoting things, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't live in the, in the blessings of if we follow the Ten Commandments and all the other laws of the Old Testament that God will bless us in this life. We'll always have children. We'll, yeah, we'll always have children. And, and we'll always have money and we'll always have those things like that. Teachers in our day that... that promote that kind of thing it's false they don't understand the word of god but what he does promise us that that in this temporary life it, the, the the pain and suffering that we experience in this life will not be worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us The hope isn't that the world will just fix itself and we'll all be all right. The hope is that Jesus Christ will fix the world and we will be, if we are in him, all right. And that's something to rejoice in. That's not not to be involved in the world around you, not to love your neighbor and do all the things that God calls us to do, but it's to remind us of all those things, not to live in the disappointment of this age, but to stir our hearts in the hope and the promise that we have in the life to come. Better promises, a better hope, a better hope. He points us in our our minds and our attentions, but from that which is temporary to that which is eternal. Jesus does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Store up for yourself treasures of word in heaven. Why? Because thieves break through stuff down here and moth tears up stuff. I guess moth does that. Rust. He says, but they don't do so in heaven. Later on, he will go on and say, seek first the kingdom of God for all, uh, and its righteousness. And all these things, all the needs of this life will, will, will be met. God will take care of you. We'll, we can trust him as our heavenly father. Now, sometimes his view of our needs and our view of our needs are two different things. Amen. But even when those things collide with our idea of our needs, Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things because because he's faithful. You see, he points us to the better promises that he has made for us, the eternal rewards and the blessings 
of the covenant. And that really is the heart of the difference between the old and the new covenant. The children of Israel, as they walked out and as they, they, they began to enter into the land, part of the tribe stood on one mountain, part of the other tribe stood on the other mountain. One tribe would yell out, blessing if you keep all these, and blessing and, and blessing. And, and the other side would, would yell out, cursing and cursing if you don't obey all the things the Lord has said. But that's not what you find in the gospel, is it? All the promises of God are yay and yay. Yes and yes. That's, that's English, right? What we spoke of last week, all the blessings of God are given to us. Why? Because if you read that in Deuteronomy, all those cursings for being a covenant breaker fell on Christ and not you. Because not one of us could keep the covenant of God of the Old Testament. Not one of us could, could do the demands in which it required of us. And yet what you see in this better promises is not blessing and cursings if you make it, if you do everything right. It's blessings if you by faith come to Christ because he became a curse. All your covenant breakings, to use the language uh, that he's using here, all of the violation of God's law was met out in one sacrifice, and that is in Jesus Christ. So the Bible says he became a curse. Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And all of that is so that you and I could be blessed. That is the offer of the gospel, that is the blessedness and the, the greatness, the excellence of this new covenant. Not blessing and cursing and you may stay in the land or you get kicked out of the land into exile. No, blessing, blessing, blessing by faith because you can't earn it. You can't earn it. How often we've stumbled at that, right? How often we've stood in in frustration and fear, thinking that we do earn it, or that we can earn it, or that we must be able to earn it. And yet the Bible says, no, you could not. That is why Jesus Christ came and died. To become a curse, to take the curse of the first covenant, the Mosaic law, so that you and I might have the blessing of this new life, new covenant that he has given to us. Well, beloved, there's more than that. And I think for us this morning, I want to stop here at this point because it brings us into belonging. And you see that beginning in verse number 8 through verse number 13. But if you will, turn with me to the book of, and we'll look at that next week because I don't want to do a, just a quick over run through that. It's such a beautiful passage and, and just a glorious promise and truth given to us. And we've been speaking much about what God has done for us, about the promises and, and, and turning from temporary things to eternal things. And I know maybe you're here this morning and all that's foreign to you. And can I say this morning that is exactly what the gospel is. When you hear the word gospel, that is that is the content, the message 
that you and I were cursed because we've sinned against God and God's law. But instead of facing the consequences of that curse in which you haven't at this very moment yet because you're, very, you're alive and you're here with us this morning, but there will be a day which, which the consequences of sin will be met out on everyone. But instead of the message of curse, it tells us that this one Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law, all of God's righteous requirements, all of his demands and and expressions of holiness which reflect him and, and call us to mimic him was met out in this one man, Jesus Christ. It was sinless to say it a different way. And yet he was treated as the vilest sinner. So that the vilest sinner, so that you this morning might be treated as him. And you say, how does that happen? Well, the Bible says that by faith we come to him. They that call upon the name of the Lord in Romans chapter number 10 shall be saved. And saying that the weight of curse that that is upon us, the answer to that is found in coming to God. But not just coming to God like finding religion that you find in in some of the world, but coming to God through this, this blessed person, Jesus Christ. Don't you see all that we've been talking about this morning is who he is to his people and what he's done for us. And for us that know him, has put our faith and trust in him what a joyous reminder it is to worship him to live in thankfulness and gratitude for all that he does and continues to do what confidence it gives us in this life amen turn with me to revelation chapter number seven as we close with this passage beginning of verse number nine He says, After this I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And that is our great high priest. Not only do we anticipate that moment, but we who is even now interceding for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that we can gather together. Oh, true freedom, true freedom from oppression is oppression from guilt, freedom from death, freedom from the bondage of our sin, and the grasp of, of Satan, our enemy. And you give us all that led through Jesus Christ. The truth shall set you free. 
And the Bible tells us if the Son sets us free, we shall be free indeed. Lord, I thank you for just the reminder of the ministry of our of Jesus this morning. We thank you for this gathering together. We thank you for this day. We can rejoice. And God, I pray, burdened for those who may not know him, do not know him this morning, that they would even this morning call upon the name of the Lord. And would they... And will they not find you ready to save? How you remind us even even in Hebrews that you're able to save to the uttermost. We pray that you would do that even this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.